Hello, and welcome to the Viridescent Circle. This is the first of the Advent letters. I think there will be at least two. This letter is a little heady. I haven't yet unleashed on you my full theological wordiness, but today it might come because I need to speak to you about the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. And the words you're going to hear in these next weeks. I was awake in the starlit night. The moon was full early last week, and its light filled the room and dominated the senses. But now it's waning making space in the sky for starlight. The stars reminded my sleep-filled mind of the lessons and carols service Stefan and I had listened to last night in the candlelight of our home in the woods. This service, with its potent narrative emphasis, taking the listener in song and word through the great arch of the story of God's love for us, has a way of etching itself into the depths of our being. Wondrous words, mostly coming from the prophet Isaiah, sang through me in familiar chants all night long. It was as if the stars were singing with the music that I had heard. And I woke hungry for more. In the dark I knew that I must write to you today about the Hebrew and Christian scriptures the language world in which this service and so much of our life in church is steeped. A language world so vast, so complex, old and vibrant. A language world that has the power to beckon, command and transform. What do I mean by language world? I will try to explain as best I can, perhaps with a metaphor or two, maybe even three. We are people of place. We perceive reality with the frame of the world in which we indwell. It affects our emotions and our understanding. For instance, I live away from the city. Here it is quiet and dark right now. Our major forms of stimulation come from the natural world, from books in our home, and from conversations that we have between us. We live in an environment which is constantly changing, but only in small ways. This is a place with extreme weather, but subtle landscape. It is flat. The trees are scrubby, not stately or impressive. The animals are mostly small and somewhat common at first glance. Mule deer, ear ermines, all sorts of birds, mice and coyotes. All of this affects the way we've come to think. I've noticed this in a profound way in this transition from city life to country life. In the city, there was so much that was happening 
so much stimulation, so much that was pressing upon us what needs to get done and who and what needs to be seen. But here, small things have become precious and more detailed. More and more can be noticed within subtlety. The commonplace becomes unique, distinct, and the rhythms of the natural world become reasonable and the city rhythms seem strange. I'm no longer convinced that all that I had valued in the city is valuable or that I have to exist the way I thought I had to when I lived there. My worldview has changed because of my place. You too might live in a world that affects the limits of your perspective. Those of you in university are saturated with ideas that ever shape what and how you see the world. Constantly, there is this process of expansion and contraction. And as you walk down the street, the ideas that you've been taking into your mind affect the new ideas that are possible for you and the new thoughts that you can think. And those of you who live in a city, you feel its pace, its pressures. Your desires are formed on the streets you walk in and the communities you indwell. Constantly, the world you inhabit affects the way you reason about that same world. Consciously or unconsciously, I think this happens. And I'm not asking us to evaluate what kind of landscapes are better or worse in this moment. I'm just saying this happens to us. Landscape and ideascapes affect the way we live, the thoughts that are possible to us. The Hebrew and Christian scriptures are not just a book. They are a landscape into which the listener and the reader is invited to exist. The purpose of religious practice is to expose the seeker or the believer to the nature of this landscape, to invite them to live inside the world as it is described by the text. We learn by exposure to word and sacrament what is nourishing, what is good, the realms of truth, what the promise is, how the promise is lived out, what can happen to those who follow this path, what can happen to those who turn away. Just as we are surrounded by different land forms and human structures in a physical landscape, the scriptures reveal a myriad of different tangible realities which form a world in which we move about explore, see new things within, think, and live within. Now, scripture was my first world, my first language world. And it, in my childhood, was more real than 
any other landscape I inhabited. It was like a mother tongue, a cradle, a home. My mother, in her devotion, made sure that our lives were saturated with scripture, daily, morning, on the steps, as we got ready for school, and night after supper, and when we went to bed, in word and song, she made it present for us. And as for my father, he visibly came alive whenever he read scripture, and he read with such an indescribable passion and a gorgeous Portuguese accent, which still echoes in my mind when the words filter through me. Scripture was so much in the air of our home that when my mother challenged us to read through the text fully, I took up the challenge at seven or eight without even wondering if it was possible insisting on the King James Version with its romantic impossibilities of language, and by eleven had come through it, not understanding much in my mind at all. But the poetry and the truth had rooted itself in my bones, framed my thinking about possibilities, and made it summons upon my life. In young adulthood, other cultural landscapes questioned my understanding of this home ground, which was so foundational for me. And so began a life of wrestling and learning afresh the place in which I exist. Do any of you, I wonder, share my experience? I imagine there are a few of you for whom scripture is your mother tongue, your home landscape, and you will have stories to tell of the landscape of words that have shaped your life. However, for some of you, the words you hear in a dim chapel surrounded by others, or read written on that strange scritta paper of most Bibles, might be new and strange, indecipherable poetry that washes over you for the first time. I wonder what the words do to you as you hear them for this first time. I'm almost jealous of that experience. And then there may also be others of you who have been exposed to this text, but who are very uncertain and unconvinced that a text should be allowed this much power in a human life. You might believe in the importance of critical distance in the reception of this ancient religious text so rife with every possible emotion, experience, angle, eros, vociferous violence, harsh words, and commands. You might feel that theory should chasten any relationship we have with this text. And you have a valid point. A point easily affirmed because still others of you will have been exposed to the words of scripture wielded with unkindness against you. The landscape of scripture might have been put out for you like a tiny box in which you do not fit. Pain and confusion might be your first response to something that is supposed to heal. When certain parts are read, 
you might need to defend yourself against what, against what feels like a barrage of words and images which stir up troubled waters within you and make you want to flee. All of this shows that scripture is powerful. And as it is powerful, it has been used by power to justify great evil and oppression. Even by the innocent and wise, it can be easily mishandled, misconstrued, and misinterpreted. A multi-layered, multifaceted, and holy text in human hands and human minds is a dangerous thing. This is a harsh, strange landscape. And even beyond the vicissitude of our human propensity for cutting up and mishandling the holy and putting things in weird places, in its very essence, scripture is more like a scalpel than a healing balm in the hand of a surgeon, to change the metaphor. Even if you are a believer, if scripture never disturbs you nor makes you writhe, then you're not listening closely enough or you are controlling the message you want to hear. As it says in the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Beloved, scripture is complicated and our reception of it is complicated and impacted by those in power and by our own capacities. And there is not time in this short letter to properly grapple with the two briefly stated issues about all the things that can go wrong. Because while honoring and taking very seriously these valid concerns, I find it imperative that I somehow communicate to you something which might not invite your critique in these next weeks. You have and you will have opportunities to continue to do that and and you must the harder task is to invite you in a coherent way to walk into the landscape of the words from scripture you will hear in these next weeks for they are truly earth-shattering have you ever driven into the rocky mountains well, if you have, you know what happens when you reach the foothills. Well, this is the moment in the church year when we get to the foothills. When our jaw drops. And from here on in, it's just constantly overwhelming and earth-shattering. Therefore, I am going to try to deal with these difficulties of reading and engaging this landscape, not by engaging those difficulties directly, but by continuing to draw attention to the nature of the text and how this nature makes room 
for strenuous critique, while maintaining its integrity as long as you're willing to receive it with the seriousness it asks of you. I'm asking you to engage in trust today as you continue to struggle for the rest of your life. Bringing your struggles to each other, to the text again and again, and to your prayers. The best piece of wisdom I ever heard in the midst of my hardest struggles in regards to engaging with the Jewish and Christian scriptures was that this text and the God they speak are broad and strong enough to handle all of our questions, concerns, frustration, and anger. We never need to hold back. However, the thing that we must never do is underestimate what we are dealing with. What we're asked to do is not to patronize the text and its writers, nor the one who speaks through it, believing that we are wiser and more progressive than the text itself, and that we should fix the text. Instead, we're being asked to press more deeply into the text, bringing all of our reason, all of our will, and our context into it. Argue your best, said my teacher, but be prepared for that which supersedes your strength. So, I'm not inviting you to a blind reception of scripture. Rather, I would like to invite you into a long relationship with this text. I'm asking you to receive scripture not like you would receive any other text. I'm asking you to hear that scripture's inherent claim is to be more. And to understand that the text cannot be read properly without engaging that claim very seriously. Scripture heard or read as flat, fact-filled, progressive, and linear, from which we can gather clear information on who God is, on how to live in any prescriptive way, is highly pro problematic. And it can lead, and has led, to many of the aforementioned problems. It is not flat. By its nature, Scripture is multidimensional. As we have just explored, it creates a multifaceted space in which we move. It also modifies our understanding of time. And the nature of its relationship with time reveals something else that's very important and might help us in what we're trying to grapple with here. Scripture is a historical text because it was written in history about history but and this is the important part this is only a secondary function of scripture over which the authority of its primary stated function as word or speech of god 
always takes precedence. The historical rootedness of scripture is part of its essence. We cannot take these words out of time. But this is complicated because we cannot take them out of the time when they happened, nor can we take them out of the time when they are being read, nor can we take them out of all of the times in which they have been read and grappled through throughout time. What happens when we read scripture is that we go to the time when it happened, but we are also always with the times when it has been read before, and we are in the time in which we are hearing it and reading it. This is true because the historical rootedness of the text is always authorized by the fact that this is the word of God who is eternal. And if this word of God is eternal, then it isn't bound in one moment, but it happens in that moment, as it happens every time the word is read. And it happens as a summons of God in history. It is the summons of God operating in the past. It is the summons of God operating in the church's interpretation of the past summons throughout history. And it is the summons of God in our present as we engage with the long past and all of its interpretations and as we seek to see towards our future. It is always a summons, thus always an invitation into a relationship, a relationship of trust, not blind trust, but rather active trust. Trust that expects that what is being revealed has a wholeness that alone we cannot see, but which we can seek, which is spacious and wise enough to open and fulfill us rather than to inhibit and destroy us. Thus, if one part of the text is deeply offensive and troubling, in trust we will hope and seek to know how that offense might be held in tension with another part of the text, which will help us to hear afresh a hard good word in the whole, not a hard evil word. And in trust, we will seek to understand how that offensive word has been read throughout history and draw from the variety of wisdom and movement in the life of the church over time. What is asked is that we trust that the one who speaks our creation, who enters into a covenant of love with one particular people in history and space, and who operates in that love throughout their history, is really loving. For Christians, we are invited to read the whole of the scripture as pointing to Christ, revealing the love that will come into our flesh and go to death to save us. Here's another metaphor. I once heard this incredibly helpful description of scripture as being a mosaic of an icon of Christ's face looking at us. Every bit of scripture is a tiny piece of the mosaic, which makes a whole picture. And that's not, no part 
can be understood independently of the whole of the rest. This is a helpful way to engage it because it demands of us that we never make a final judgment on any part of the text without holding it in relationship with the rest. And it demands that we give it a lifetime, a long history. Now, there's another piece. Because within the text itself, it is made very clear that not every word of scripture is created or understood historically and spiritually as equivalent. Both in the Jewish scriptures and in the gospel, a central truth presides over the whole. The primary word of the scriptures, the first commandment, as stated both in the Hebrew scriptures and in the New Testament, is always love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, we hear this every Mass and every Eucharist service. And it says, on this, on this, hang all the law and the prophets. This means that the whole of the scriptures must be read as a summons to love God. And love God not only blindly, but with your whole heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And with all your strength. And it is also a summons to love our neighbor. And when a word or a summons that we hear while reading this text does not breed love, as regretfully has happened so often in history, we must resist and submit and hear again until love's reign is restored. And let us remember that for Christians, the love of which we speak is fully revealed by the death and resurrection of Christ. What does this mean about the nature of the love to which we are being called? The double command of love is, as one author describes it, an orienting luminous center through which we are invited to see a highly varied and complex reality shaped by divine providence. Scripture, in the vastness of its scope and story, and by its central anchor point, provides a light within which to see the incredible variety of complex reality. It invites us to see the biblical landscape and the landscapes of all of our lives held in the summons of God to love. I know there is much more to say, but I hope that this is the beginning of an invitation which enables and inspires you to trust enough to hear what is coming in the next few weeks. For as I've said, in these weeks and in the great drama of Lent and Holy Week, the church is filled with the most magnificent thick mysteries. Words 
that have rattled the minds of many a genius and have mastered the heart of many monsters will be spoken in these next days. And I don't want you to miss them in any fog of distraction or resistance. I want instead for you to hear the call of the prophet Baruch saying, Arise, O Jerusalem, stand upon the height, look towards the east, and see your children gathered from the west and the east at the word of the Holy One, rejoicing that God has remembered them. I want you to think about the world and listen to the heart of God when he cries with the prophet Isaiah, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And I pray that you can rest in trust when it finally culminates. And you can truly hear this word of love. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not, and the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. While you listen in these weeks, know this, beloved. I and many others who love you will be praying for you daily. I will pray the collect from the Book of Common Prayer for the second Sunday of Advent. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God be so near to you in these weeks. In love. Okay.
Thank you for listening to the Viridescent Circle. I'm grateful to Edmund Pinto for the beautiful music, to Stefan for the protection help and all the other help you offer, and to Peter Bullerwell for making things run very smoothly. Have a beautiful day.